Morning Twitter. I am Isaac Fitzgerald. The man tweeting to my right is Saeed Jones. It is Wednesday, and you are watching AM to DM. I was tweeting the eggplant emoji with the AM to DM live link. Okay, mm, so listen. Mm, 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 mm. I know you have a whole segment. A whole about segment. I know a you whole are segment. so excited. Yeah, we're talking to Allison P. Davis. She's the best. But I would be remiss, a remiss. to not engage the civil discourse. Mm. <laughs> the civil discourse that is what, Saeed? Big dick energy. I've Big got to be a part of this. Energy. I have to. B-D-E. <laughs> Friends, Romans, countrymen. Lend me your big dicks. And your eggplant emoji. There we it just, is. I, this is incredible. And listen, <laughs> you gotta find joy where you can in this day and age. And over the last couple of days, it really feels like it's come from BDE. Listen, Ariana Grande told us the light was coming. <laughs> All right, and this, this, this me is yet another gift what you just she said. has introduced mm. into our life. She mm. said, no tears left to cry, mm. and mm. the light is coming, and mm. now we know why she ain't crying, and we know why the lights are on. Yeah. I live. That's a tears emoji. <laughs> tears emoji. <laughs> ah, you got it. Okay. There it is. Let's start with this tweet from Katie Natopoulos. Uh, how are we still talking about civility mm. and yet are declaring the big dick energy meme over after 36 hours, our priorities are fucked up? Katie, I agree. We can't let this meme go, friends. I saw it. Fight it, for the meme. It was having, it was bringing people so much joy. I saw yeah. a lot of people doing BDE rankings Woo. of like Marvel Cinematic Universe. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. People were having joy with it. And then I saw people already being like, ah, this meme's already over. <laughs> Fuck this meme. And it's kind of like, guys, guys, if we're going to talk about a restaurant whose name I don't even want to mention today for days, let's at least hold on to BDE for a little bit. Yeah. Now, I will say, listen, uh, the cut did the great story, and you're going to talk to Allison about it. Um, but they also did, like, New York Magazine also did that story, like, about, like, the MTA system and, like, how it's BDE. And I was like, listen, none of those trains have BDE. They have trains sure that, don't have BDE. Let's let that, just set that aside. But, yeah, I'm enjoying it. It's great. And I don't <laughs> ride the D train that much, but I feel like oh, just on the... Like, just on a wording level. I love my job, I love my job, I love my job. <laughs> um, I also want to say, like, I'm talking about Nanette later this morning. I'm obsessed with that mm. Netflix special, um, Hannah Gadsby. But so I've been thinking about, like, inspired by her, like, gender and the way we talk and, like, upending. And I feel like, you know, yeah, it's just a funny meme. But also, it's a fun way to kind of engage this conversation about, like, male arrogance mm -hmm. and confidence and, you know, Confidence that, versus cockiness. Yeah, uh-huh. And the know? fact that Rihanna has more BDE than all of us. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a priority, friends. That's what I'm trying to say. We're leaning into joy, meet. and it's a priority. And we are doing a whole segment on it in just a little bit. But speaking of priorities, Brittany makes a great point here. Election days should be federal holidays. I'm just saying. That's an excellent point, Brittany. Listen, excellent point. I was thinking about this a lot yesterday, all right? So many people have jobs that do not give them the time to get to, especially in like a local primary election, to get out and vote, uh, especially when they, they're working these long hours and then they have to get off of work and then go take care of their children. Um, it's wild to me that we are living in a democracy, but not many of us not given the options to participate in that democracy without facing consequences. I mean, it's, you know, the, we are in a real like whiplash kind of moment 
in America right now, where it's like, give me your tired, your poor, and then you're reading everything you know that's going on in terms of this country's decisions by elected officials regarding immigration. And I think it's similar with like, voting is so important, democracy is so important, but we're gonna make it as difficult as possible for people to vote. And I should say, we're not surprised. We know why this is the way it is, but I do really feel like it yeah. should be a national holiday. So we wanted to make space for that this morning as mm -hmm. we talk about all the primary results. Let's take it to the timeline. Do you think election days should be federal holidays? How mm -hmm. would it work? What are some reasons that come to mind You know, for you that maybe Isaac and I haven't thought about? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. Yeah. Because speaking of those elections, uh, Woo! Yeah. Woo! -woo. Yeah, yeah. There yeah. was a giant upset here in New York City last night. The Washington Post Jeff Stein tweeted this. This photo is from November 14th, 2017. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 28 years old, was then working as a bartender. Less than a year later, she defeated the likely next speaker of the house and will also certainly be the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. I love that photo so much. Wow. Look, she is just washing a bar. Doing and just, the work. And baby. she is gonna make history. Wow. And even in that photo, she maybe doesn't even know that. I love it. BuzzFeed News Deputy Politics Editor Matt Behrman tweeted, shell-shocked. That was the phrase an aide who works closely with Democratic House leadership used in a text to BuzzFeed News to describe tonight. Quote, I don't know what else to say. We joked about it today. I can't believe this is real life joked about it. It's mm. interesting. And, and, and again, this kind of presumed arrogance over who we pay attention to and who we don't. It's kind of an ongoing theme, right? Well, Matt Berman joins us now. Good morning, Matt. Hey, good morning. All right. Thanks for joining us. All right. Yeah, so, right on. so Matt, you have been following this race very closely. Uh, what can you tell us about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? So like, as you guys were both just saying, I mean, she in some ways came out of nowhere, right? If you're really looking at it from a national perspective, like as you were saying, she worked at a bar a year ago, but she's also somebody who has been deeply, deeply invested in this community for years. I mean, but she's saying something, even though she's only 28, like when she was 22, for example, she was working at a uh, publishing company that she had helped found that was trying to make children's books to try to paint the Bronx in a positive light. She's somebody who is like, has very, very deep roots to her community for somebody who's so young. And clearly that's what's paid off. It was a huge part of her campaign, uh, especially how she contrasts herself with Joe Crowley. And uh, it's, it's been pretty incredible to see how this played out. All right, Matt, let's talk about that campaign for a second. Uh, what can you tell us? How did she win this? So she ran on a lot of the issues that are very popular on the left right now. So she ran on Medicare for all. She ran on a platform of abolishing ICE. She believes that housing is a human right. She's somebody who, um, in a lot of ways, is embodies this energy on the left. And that, I think, did really help propel her campaign. It helped get her some attention in some more uh, progressive media outlets. But she also was just like a, an activist. And I think part of her talent as an activist really played out here. Like the weekend before the election, when you would think she would be going door knocking like crazy, she was in Texas at the border protesting Trump's border policy. So she is somebody who has uh, a really strong uh, kind of foundation and activism. And I think that, that really helped in a campaign against somebody who hadn't faced a primary challenger since 2004. Right. A 
10 time 10 term establishment Democrat. I wanted to ask you about fundraising, right? Because when going up against an incumbent like Joe Crowley, who's not just well known, but I'm assuming has, you know, the fundraising machine behind him, this is yes. important. And and I was struck in your article, you note that Emily's List, uh, the fundraising group that supports women running for Democratic roles, did not endorse her. And she said that she was kind of taken about by that. So why yeah. did Emily's List not support her? And, and how did she kind of make up the fundraising gap? So on Emily's List, this has been something that's been a huge issue all year for, for Democrats, especially people on the left, because there's a lot of ill will towards Emily's List as basically being willing to support Democratic women. And they've, you know, really done a lot to support Democratic women. But there's concern that they're really only interested in supporting Democratic women who they think can win and who come out of a more establishment sort of background who could win in a general election. Well, uh, so yeah, they stuck, they stuck out of this race. Yeah, they miscalled that one. Uh, I do want to yeah. ask, uh, Joe, Joe Car Crowley's loss, what does this mean for the Democratic Party? And especially, what does this mean for Nancy Pelosi? So today is going to be wild, I think, in D.C., uh, as, as House Democrats sort of reconfigure and try to decide how to move forward. You have a situation where one of the biggest storylines of last night is a 28-year-old, one in a district that is... Uh, has become majority minority, uh, where the most voters or at least a huge block of voters are under the age of 45. And then you have House leadership right now, like the three remaining House Democratic leaders are all in their 70s. Uh, they are going to be trying to figure out a way to, to win and try to spin their way into being the right choice for a new young generation of Democrats. But I think it might be a tough sell. And there are a lot of young Democrats in the House right now who have to be feeling pretty excited about their chances to kind of move up. All right. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Matt. All right. So earlier this morning, uh, Joe Berkowitz highlighted an interesting paragraph. I saw we started talking about it. Mm -hmm. It's from a New York Times story that went up overnight um, about Ocasio-Cortez's victory. Here's the quote. Before Tuesday's victory catapulted her to the front of the political conversation, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez seemed to find readier audiences with outlets such as Elite Daily, Mike, or Refinery29, websites most often associated with millennial and female audiences than with national national publications, I'm assuming, like the New York Times. That is about to change. Hmm, Joe added, is this the New York Times' way of apologizing for ignoring her until now? Okay, and here's what Jill Abramson had to say about it. Kind of pisses me off that the New York Times is still asking who is Ocasio-Cortez when it should have covered her campaign. Missing her rise is akin to not seeing Trump's coming win in 2016. Wow, all right. Well, Jill Abramson, author, Harvard professor, and former executive editor of the New York Times, joins us now. Jill, good morning. Hi, how are you? Hi, thank you for joining us at such short notice. I mean, we literally, we saw your tweet and we were like, oh, this is a conversation we would love to have you be a part of. Well, I'm happy to be a part of it. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I want to start here, Jill. Why does this piss you off? Well, it, it just seems to me that there should have been news coverage of this race. Uh, it was obviously an important uh, race because it involved Crowley, who was expected to challenge Nancy Pelosi and possibly be the next Speaker of the House at the Democrats. Uh, win in 
November, and I couldn't find, when I was looking this morning, a single news story on her. There's a good editorial um, about Crowley's failure to debate um, Alexandria, in, in, but that's the opinion section. There was I couldn't find any news coverage, and... It kind of pissed me off. <laughs> it kind of pissed you off. Well, reading your tweet, it seems as if you're also noting that the New York Times, more broadly, has not learned uh, its lesson, so to speak, from the 2016 um, campaign. And I wondered, is that accurate kind of uh, interpretation? And, and do you feel that they haven't learned that lesson? Well, all I can tell you, I, I just refer to the Times' own words, which is after the November 26th, 2016 election and the surprise of Trump's win, they ran a very unusual letter um, and published it from the publisher and the executive editor of the paper, you know, saying, you know, that a little bit, you know, that they admitting that they were too much taken by surprise and rededicating themselves to the basic, you know, news gathering requirement of shoe leather reporting and being out in the country. And for the New York Times, that certainly means being all over New York. Uh, and it, it just seemed to me to be a possible lapse in fulfilling the promise that they made back then. All right, well, then let's think about that. From, like, let's say, a Metro Desk editor's perspective, what candidates do deserve coverage? When should somebody be popping up on radars? Well, so, you know, it, it, I, I think that it is an interesting question because you don't want to give unnecessary attention to candidates who may, you know, just be sort of flaky and non-fact because the Times, like all news organizations these days, is faced with you know, limited resources. They can't cover everyone and every event. But, you know, when someone was obviously beginning to cut through in a serious way with millennials, as she was, uh, I think, someone, some editor, and certainly the on-the-ground political reporters should have been bringing it to the attention of their editors. And whether they did and found editors not interested or not, I, of course, wouldn't know. Okay. And, and one last quick question. I guess, what is it institutionally about the New York Times? Like, the New York Times is on it is literally like a meme account, right? So why is it that the New York Times uh, always seems to have this pattern of not anticipating or covering, you know, kind of um, marginalized or anti-establishment stories until after they've kind of hit the, the mainstream? Well, the, the New York Times, and it, it, this was true certainly in my time, too, is an establishment publication. Uh, you know, many good writers, including David Halbersham and Richard Gilveary, have written about the Times' role as an establishment mainstream voice. And it is, but usually it does a very good job of covering what's happening in the world. So I don't think that, um, I hope this isn't an endemic problem. Hope it's not an endemic problem. Well, Jill, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
Okay, thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Uh, up next, we're going live from the district with more election reactions, plus last night's court ruling that orders an end to family separations at the border. So much is happening. A lot of stuff. Welcome back. Okay, we are now going live from the district with BuzzFeed News White House correspondent Tarini Party. Tarini, good morning. Good morning. All right, thanks for joining us. Yeah, let's continue discussing last night's primary results. Here's a tweet from Alexis Levinson about one of the Republican races. Michael Grimm says Trump's endorsement was definitely the determinant. Quote, looking back now, I think so. And I think that when we were doing our calls and knocking on doors, I don't think people wanted to tell us that the president's endorsement swayed them. Interesting. Well, it was a big night, of course, for Trump-endorsed candidates, including Dan Donovan in New York City uh, and Henry McMaster in South Carolina. Tarini, uh, did Trump's endorsements really swing the races? It does seem like his endorsement mattered in these races. They were polls had shown that they were pretty tight up until the end. Trump, of course, endorsed both candidates on Twitter. Uh, he even went down to South Carolina earlier this week and campaigned for McMaster. And all the candidates in these races had tried to show how close they were to the president. Uh, these are red uh, areas, you know, in South Carolina, obviously a red state. And then you have um, the district where Grimm and Donovan were running, which Trump won by 10 points. So by showing that they were close to the president um, was something that voters seemed to be looking for. And in that case, Trump's endorsement seemed to have helped both of those candidates. Now, we've seen Trump endorsing candidate kind of backfire in the past. This is obviously a change from that. So what does this mean for the midterms that are coming up? Right. So I think Republicans are going to be pretty excited about what happened last night in those two areas because they're uh, hoping to pick up Senate seats in red states that Democrats are defending. So they're hoping that uh, when Trump endorses these Republican candidates, which he has in most cases and in many cases has even gone out to those states and campaigned with them, they are hoping that his supporters will come out and help those candidates win those races. Okay. Um, earlier this morning, we, we've been talking about um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's surprising victory against Joe Crowley. The president has tweeted a lot about results from last night. And listen, I'm not a politico, but is it fair to say that he might be misreading the significance of her upset win? Yeah, this is clearly, you know, the biggest story of the night, and he does not belong in this story in any way, but he is trying to insert himself into it, it seems. I'm not sure how he's reading these uh, results to have himself factored in there, but uh, clearly it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Okay, just checking. The president is very good <laughs> at somehow looking at tea leaves and seeing his own yeah. reflection. Yeah. Uh, lastly, Tarini, exactly. we want to ask about the White House's response to the travel ban decision. Is there any sense that the administration is emboldened by this ruling? The, the president is definitely feeling emboldened by the ruling. We saw him just yesterday after the ruling came out. He kind of took a victory lap. He, felt, he said the administration was vindicated by the ruling. He, um, he said it was a tremendous, a tremendous victory. And we know that there are other potential uh, measures in the works ahead of the midterms where the administration could be taking more action on immigration-related issues So um, through executive orders. So the president has clearly made the calculation that he wants to focus on immigration 
and Congress is just not moving fast enough for him. So there's an effort here to try to do what he to to try to see what he can do through uh, executive ash, action on these issues. Absolutely, and I see just like less than an hour ago. I mean, he tweeted in all caps, you know, that House Republicans should pass uh, the strong but fair immigration bill known as Goodlatte um, in the afternoon vote today. Though he says he knows Dems won't let it pass in the Senate. So is that part of what we're seeing from him? Right. He's, he's, he knows that this is an issue his base cares about, and he's told Republicans that they're wasting their time in trying to pass something uh, through Congress because Democrats are going to obstruct anything they try to do. What he isn't saying is obviously that his own party can't get on the same page when it comes to immigration. So if he wants to do something, he's going to have to do it through executive action. So that's where the administration is right now, and that's what they're considering. Tariq, I want to ask, uh, the list that SCOTUS passed yesterday, isn't North Korea on that list? And have we heard anything from the White House about that? You're absolutely right. So North Korea is one of the two uh, non-Muslim majority countries that's on this list uh, with the travel ban. It seems from what at least I've heard that it's not really going to affect the sort of diplomatic efforts between the two countries. There are already pretty severe restrictions between travel uh, from North Korea. So uh, it seems like it's not really going to affect the current policy too much. All right. Well, Tarini, as always, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. All right. And, you know, something that stuck out to me um, as we were talking about this, you know, with, we're going to talk about the border uh, situation in just a moment. It occurs to me that, you know, Ocasio-Cortez, you know, she's going like an unprecedented race and she spends her last weekend right before the election, mm -hmm. uh, before the primary uh, at the border, not in New York campaigning. And that just seems both bold, mm -hmm. um, perhaps mm -hmm. savvy, he called her, like maybe as one of her talents as an activist seizing on those opportunities, mm -hmm. but also speaks to how important of an issue this is for mm -hmm. so many people. It was clear messaging, and here's the thing, I think a lot of people, especially in local elections, they want their representatives, obviously, to represent them, to mm -hmm. represent their community, and Matt Berman talked to how deeply embedded she is in the community that she's right. from, but that said, they also want their representatives to represent their, um, you know, feelings, passions, grievances right. on this national level. And I think that was a bold choice by her, but it was also this incredible signaling to her constituents. And it was pretty incredible. Yeah, I wonder if that's something we will continue to see when we look at particularly local representation. It's not just about like, are you in my neighborhood knocking on doors, mm -hmm. but also like, listen, I am a person of color. I come from an immigrant background. What's going on, you know, at the border? How are you case? representing me on the national level? Right. Well, to that point, here's a tweet from Zoe Tillman. Tonight's injunction orders the government to stop separating most families and immigrants immigration detention to reunite parents and children within 30 days or 14 days if a child is under the age of five and to give parents telephone access to their kids within 10 days. Pretty Joining wild. us now is BuzzFeed News Justice reporter Zoe Tillman. Zoe, this injunction came in late last night. What led to the decision? Uh, so this judge has had this case for a while now. The case actually predates um, the president's action on border separation. It predates sort of the immediate crisis that we've been seeing for the past few weeks. This was filed much earlier in the year. Um, so several weeks ago, this judge had denied the government's request to dismiss this class action, which was brought on behalf of families who had been separated uh, at the border. And, you know, the ACLU, which brought this case, had asked the judge for an immediate injunction, uh, taking 
taking action to stop separations and to reunify families. And they had, you know, said that given the current crisis at the border, it was even more urgent for the judge to act. The judge held a hearing last week to discuss the significance of what the president had done with his executive order, what was going on. He asked for additional briefs, but made clear that he was going to rule pretty quickly. And within hours of the last brief coming in yesterday, what we got was a ruling and a very significant one. Right. And in detailed, I mean, in light of like all of the confusion and lack of detail from the administration, just hearing like a timeline and a deadline. And if you're this old or, you know, five years old or, you know, more, um, what, if anything, has the Department of Justice said in response, though? So DOJ has, uh, they released a statement that said it had really nothing to do with the ruling. It said this decision means that it's even more imperative for Congress to act now. So they kind of shifted the ball back over to Congress, which is what the president has been doing and saying, you know, it's this is not up to us to deal with. This is a congressional problem that they need to fix. So the Justice Department right now is declining to comment. We asked, are you going to appeal this? They've declined to comment. We don't know what their next steps are going to be in this case. But what we do know is that this, you know, further adds to the uh, time pressure that uh, Congress is feeling right now to take action. You know, this order says that for kids who are under five, the administration must reunite them with their families, with, with their parents within two weeks. Um, and for all kids, all of the kids out there right now, the judge set this 30-day deadline. Um, I think a question right now is how this intersects with this 1997 settlement that we've been talking about, the Flores Agreement, which says that kids cannot be held for long periods of time in immigration detention. And uh, that's been read to mean that a sort of a 20-day window is appropriate, but after that point, kids need to be released. So if we pass that 20-day mark, if you know families are being reunited right now in immigration detention, we get to 20 days. The question is going to be, you know, what is the administration going to do? After that point, you know, are they going to start releasing families together if they're not allowed to separate them anymore? Are they going to try and keep them together and hope that this a judge in California who's overseeing the settlement hope that she takes action within that period of time? There's just a lot of unknowns right now. All right, uh, Zoe, that's really incredible. A ticking clock now ticking even faster. Um, what can you tell us about the people that brought this case uh, that led to this decision? So there are two main plaintiffs that the ACLU is representing. Um, they're both women who crossed the border. One of them presented at a port of entry claiming asylum and says that she was still separated from her child. Um, the judge last night had particularly harsh words for the government about that situation, saying that this is, you know, we are not supposed to treat asylum seekers like you know, other people who cross illegally, who may face criminal prosecution. He said that we are a country of compassion and this is not who we are. Uh, the other plaintiff is someone who crossed between ports of entry, who crossed the border and then presented, uh, was apprehended by immigration officials and I believe is also seeking asylum now. Um, and they're now representing a class, a very broad class of basically all parents in immigration detention um, who are already separated from their kids or will be separated. So it's not just asylum seekers. It's not just parents in one situation or the other. It really covers, you know, largely the universe of families that we've been talking about. All right. Well, Zoe, thank you so much as always for bringing your knowledge onto the show. Sure thing. All right. Up next, it's fire tweets. But don't worry, we will still be talking about the energies that emit from enormous dicks. Stay tuned. <laughs>
right, y'all, so Slack is down. Mm. Slack is down. Yes. Uh, here's a tweet from Riley Wynn. When Slack isn't working and you actually have to walk over to your coworker's desk to talk to them. Mm. Uh, I think that's great. I think, seriously, right now, you know, you can take your phone so you can keep watching the show. Go get a cup of coffee. Interact with somebody face-to-face. -face. Say hello to a coworker you nope. haven't seen in a long time. Nope. You know, what about a water cooler? You got one of those in your no, office? Thanks. People used no, to have you. conversation around those. No, thank you. We actually use Slack to talk with our producers during the show. You'll sometimes see me on my phone for that reason, looking mm -hmm. at tweets. It's all going on, so, you know. We're shook. Yeah, we're with you, people. We feel for you. I saw someone say Cynthia Nixon fixed Slack. I think that was Carol. So <laughs> no, fix, 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 <laughs> the, fix the MTA first. Uh, the other thing that when this happens, the thing I worry about, yeah. is Slack's leaking. All of a sudden, Slack's going oh. public. You know me. I don't say anything on nothing. Whew. But yeah, I know some of you out there <laughs> got some interest in Slacks. Let's get to these fire. Tweets. All right, let's Ready? do these fire tweets. Here we go. <laughs> Rachel Jane Andelman, you tweeted me entering a spin class with an armful of sticks and plates. It seems I've been gravely misled regarding the nature of this activity. It's too easy yes. for me to picture you in that scenario. Just kind of spinning, just keeping <laughs> the plates spinning. Is that how it goes? I thought yeah, spinning plates. <laughs> that's the joke, Sai. I know, uh, no, I didn't, it was like, that, that's how, I thought it was more like if a this. Ooh, no? give it, no, show it to me again. <laughs> how does it go? That's how you spin the plates, huh? What's the physics on that? I'm running away to join the circus. Okay, <laughs> this comes from Moss Paracone. Uh, there are only two options you can have about New York City. One, I wish I lived here in the 70s when everything was a porn theater staffed by rats and the cost of admission was doing a homicide. <laughs> Two, I love it here. I'm an algorithm. My parents invented tax fraud, and my only hobby is going to pharmacies. <laughs> only two. Only two options. Those are the only two options. Which one are you? I really like doing a homicide. You know I... I doing I, a homicide. I really like doing a homicide. That's my favorite part, doing a homicide. Doing a homicide. Shout out to Moss. What about you? I don't know. I like New York now, <laughs> think, though. I'll be honest. I think I'm an algorithm. <laughs> Self-awareness is key. Blade Runner 2049 over here. All right, here we go. Francesca Ramsey, you tweeted... Minding your business is truly the cheapest way to improve your life. Okay, so yes, a prayer. To that point, mm. I know Permit Patty, I believe she's, she was fired or resigned. I think she resigned. Okay, have you noticed all those, those ladies who are always calling the cops on black and brown people mm. have like the same haircut? Mm. They have the same types of, have you, I'm just mm. seeing a. Imagine if they minded their own business. Imagine where their lives would be at today. Could be out here like, you know, serving looks, but instead you serving <laughs> looks. All right. Anyway. I'm sorry, I really like that. really good. <laughs> this next tweet comes from Beck Poppins. At the mall, a dude with a mustache skull, all right, told me my dress was pretty, and his pregnant wife hit him with her purse and yelled, women in dresses are busy, Jeremy. They are busy, Lock Jeremy. Jeremy, mind your Mustache skull tattoo. Let's talk about that. Tattoo. That's why I was kind of got hit up. Mm. Mustache skull, is it? I think it is a skull tattoo with a tattooed mustache. Not what you are picturing, which I believe Saeed was talking about a skull tattooed in your mustache area. That would be weird. Uh, either way, mind your business, Jeremy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> women in dresses are busy. I would, I would say women are busy. Just don't just, bother. Just let it walk. Ready for the Tweet of the Day? Let's go. Tweet of the Day from Allison Wilmore. You know, I am no longer surprised that everything is so bad, but I still can't get used to everything also being so 
dumb. And that is the T, Allison. Mm. That is really it. Bloop. That's all dumb. I got to say about There's that. There's some dumb shit afoot. And I'm not talking about the memes and the BDEs on the highways. No, I'm talking about, like, we're still talking about civility. Like, we're still, like, you know, just the, the, the ridiculousness mm -hmm. of everything. I mean, girl, it's a mess out there. Mm. Anyway, let's talk about those penises. Up next. Isaac is going to be discussing the internet's favorite new phrase, big dick energy. I will be sitting there just giggling. What does it mean? Who has it? Who doesn't? How is Diplo doing this morning? Ooh, we will find out. Diplo is led <laughs> into the ground. <laughs> Inquiring minds need to know. <laughs> Yesterday, The Cut's Allison P. Davis published this piece. You know he got that big dick energy. And in the midst of a dumpster fire news cycle, for a brief moment, Twitter became a happy place again. Allison joins me now. Good morning, Allison. Hello. I'm so glad. Thank you so much. One, for writing this piece, <laughs> bringing this joy into people's lives, and for coming on this show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Okay, so your piece had a bunch of frequently asked questions yes. about BDE, and I'm gonna take the last one and move it to the top. Okay. Is this an HR-appropriate way to discuss <laughs> people? I think totally, like it should be asked in interview questions, do you have BDE? It's just like a good way of categorizing the world between cocky and confident and like chill with yourself, but like not gonna be on a power trip. I think it's a useful question. As long as you use the abbreviation and don't say dick, you're fine. Don't, so in don't an HR setting, right. BDE, BDE, good way to talk about cockiness versus confidence, but don't say big dick energy. Yes, because like you want to work with someone who has BDE, but you don't want to work with someone who has like LDE or... Oh, <laughs> all right, all right. We're going to get into those other acronyms in just a moment. Uh, let's, let's do this. Why are we talking about big dick energy? What brought us to this wonderful point we're in now? Oh, uh, like my favorite celebrity moment of all time brought us here, Pete Davidson and Ariana Grande. So a while, like last week, uh, somebody was tweeting at Ariana, a question about the length of Pete, meaning a song that's gonna be on the upcoming album, but like realized, oh, that seems like a little, and supposedly Ariana slipped into the replies and said 10 inches, which like, woo, woo. <laughs> you know? So that got everyone on this like, Pete Davidson has a big man meat train. Uh, and then the <laughs> phrase big dick energy started popping up because you look at this guy and you're like, you know what, it makes sense that he would be packing and like that's where it came from. The with. tongue's hanging the out, tongue, the he, eyes. he's doing the middle finger right. all the time. It's I do like, want to say this, he even screenshotted your piece, right? I was so honored. Like if they want me in a throuple, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here, you heard it here. But seriously, I did notice he did the laughy emojis. Yes. He did only do eight. He did only eight, right? I you, was, you were on that I too. I thought it was a subliminal, like guys, I'm eight plus girth, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Don't get so excited. <laughs> All right, so, but he was having a good day. Uh, let's turn to somebody that wasn't. Music producer Diplo tweeted, Aww. how do I know if I have big dick energy? To which Ira replied, if you gotta ask. I know. And a lot of people dunked on Diplo. Ugh. A lot of people dunked on poor Diplo. Uh, but let's help him out. Okay. You know, for all the Diplos out there, what is, what is big dick energy? Okay, first of all, I just have to say that I put Diplo on my list and I said that he had big dick energy. So for him to come forward and say, do I have it? Was almost like, you just made me look foolish, man. Also Diplo, big dick energy is reading the article. <laughs> no, that's it's, right, if he's read the article, <laughs> you, you would be know. having such a 
better day. But yeah. What? So, but to me, big dick energy is this confidence to A, know that you have it and not ask all of Twitter if you have it. Um, <laughs> but it's sort of that like self-assuredness, that like low key, like I'm good with myself. I know what I have, the gifts that I have to give to the world. It's sort of like always being filled with your mother's confidence before you have to go out in the world and have it destroyed. Mm. All right, now. This it's is weird to maybe like say moms with BD, but. Yeah, I, I get what you're it. saying. I'm connecting it here. This is, uh, you know, I feel like Allison, we've known each other now for a few minutes. Yeah, so I'm going to go for it with this question. Uh, do you have to have a big dick to have big dick energy? You do not have to have a big dick to have big dick energy. Speak more on that. It's more of like a vibe, right? So you can seem like you have a big dick and mm. that's the big dick energy, but maybe you just have like a, you know, normal to small dick. Well, and what do you call it in your piece? What do you call it? Uh, an LDE? And yeah. Well, <laughs> like little dick energy is something totally different because you can have a big dick but have little dick energy. Absolutely, and I'm so glad that you brought up Little Dick Energy because I want to play a game. Oh. Okay, we are going to play a game <laughs> and show the camera both. Both We got the eggplant oh. and we got the shrimp. Uh, so I'm going to name some names. I want to hear if you think they got that big dick energy or that, uh, let's just call it like not big dick not energy. Big. Not big dick okay, energy. I'm worried Drake is going to be on this list. Well, now I want to put him on. <laughs> All right, you ready? Okay. Here we go. Ed Sheeran. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, tough one, Ed. I'm sorry. It's official now. I don't make the rules. Allison does. Uh, all right, this is very important. Simba, Ooh. but middle-aged Simba from The Lion King. Ooh. Oh, mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I like that. I like that a lot. Kanye West. Oh, uh-oh. La, 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 oh. la. Sorry, sorry, Kanye. Kanye. What? What? <laughs> not really at all. What about Prince Harry? Ooh, oh. Prince Harry coming oh, in with that yeah. BDE. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What about like? What about it? Do you think? I mean, first of all, the fact that Meghan Markle's into him because mm. he's got like a black girl into him. So, but he also has that swag that's like, I'm gonna do whatever I want to, despite what my royal family would want me to do. I'm like, I'm not gonna marry a blonde. I'm mm. not gonna marry. You know, he's bucking tradition. You can only do that. Bucking centuries of tradition. You can only do that with the. Uh, some BDE. Bucking tradition at Buckingham <laughs> Palace with his big dick energy. <laughs> Absolutely. What about Harry Potter? Well, we're talking Harry's. Oh, uh, that's a good one. Ooh. Yeah. I don't know what that sound was, yeah. but sorry, Harry Potter. That's I a. Thought it was <laughs> that's a no. Yeah. Even but like with that. Ron Weasley. Oh, ooh, interesting. All right, so Ron Weasley's got it. Yeah. Harry Potter, what, what, is it, he, he wants it too bad? He's too desperate? I think he's just a little too desperate. Mm, I can see that, I can see that. All right, what about Anthony from Queer Eye? Oh, was, look at that face. Come on. That's, that's BDE? Also, he is, like, so convicted. With, like, he's, like, so sure of those bad recipes, mm. you know? Like, he doesn't care that everyone thinks his guacamole recipe is dumb because he uses Greek yogurt and not sour cream. He doesn't care because he knows he's got that quiet BDE. That's you know? part of it, it's the, the, of the it. not caring. <laughs> All right, let's leave it with this statement from our own Alana Bennett. Uh, she tweeted, no one on this planet has more BDE than Rihanna. Is that the truth? Absolute truth. Absolute truth. <laughs> Rihanna, number one BDE, calling it right. A second, a Kate, second. Kate Blanchett, Rihanna, Kate Blanchett, yeah. give me a third, give me a third. Ooh, oh, let's go with Prince Harry, because it's on my mind now. Oh, no, uh, I take it back, Barack Obama. Ooh, 
I think, you know, and we didn't really get into a lot of that in the piece because, to be perfectly honest, a lot of people were asking her yeah. about her sexuality. And as a queer black woman, mm -hmm. I understood that this is an artist yeah. and that this is someone who wants to talk about her art, and I can make that just as interesting. Yeah. Um, and it already is as interesting, but I can tell that story in a way that is as compelling as her talking about her relationships. So I didn't ask her a lot about her relationships. She did offer up a little bit of how she feels in terms of love and relationships, which is that she is a person who is open to love and relationships. Yeah. And she's looking, you know, for a life that is full of love and creativity and a life that is full of all the beautiful things that I think a lot of people look for in a relationship. That's beautiful. And with that, we don't see a lot of queer POC representation in media. No. What do you think Janelle Monet's coming out will do for the next generation of people who are trying to embrace who they are? I think every hand helps, mm. you know? And some hands, you know, reach a little bit higher than others because of what they have to stand on. And the foundation that she has to stand on as a celebrity and an artist, you know, she's decided to use that foundation to call people in and to bring them in and to let them see more of her. And that kind of vulnerability, that kind of really deep vulnerability for someone in her mm -hmm. position is already a little bit rare. But mostly, I think um, it is the kind of thing that's going to help turn these yes. tides. Because she's not a person who's going to stand up and say, I am the queer person. Yeah. She's the person who's going to stand up and say, I too am a part of this family. And I'm down for this She's family. so much more than that. Like, she's Absolutely. so complex. I love that about her. And not only is she an amazing performer and singer, but she acts as well. She she's acts. Like Hidden Figures, Moonlight. This acts. She acts. She's a performer. Yes, she does. And so she just released the trailer for her new film, Welcome Tomorrow. And yes. she stars as a Nazi-killing doll opposite yes. Steve Carell. Yes. If you could see her pictured in any movie role, what would you mm -hmm. cast her in? That's delicious, yes. because I love a movie role. Oh, we do. Um, let me. <laughs> see who I would love to see her. You know, I just feel like Janelle could play anybody, Anything. but I really, really want to see her be able to dig into a dramatic piece that she leads. Yes. That's what I would like to see mm -hmm. her be able to do. Um, because the capability, I think, clearly there, it's just about she getting the, the right opportunity. She has yes. the range. It's just about getting the right opportunity. And I know that opportunity is coming for her because if somebody else isn't writing it, I am. Yes, well, you heard it here first, <laughs> Ashley. Thank you so much yeah. for joining me today and talk about our queen, Janelle Jan 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 Monae. Oh, I'm so flustered. I understand. Like, we love Jane. She does that. Thank you so much for joining us. And more AM to DM is up next. We love you. Welcome back. Okay, here's a tweet from Pedota that is great. Hannah Gadsby's Nanette is one of the most powerful and raw expressions of truth I have witnessed. I honestly think this is transformative. Not sure what to do with all of the thoughts and feelings it raises, but seeing someone own their story is radical and it's fucking amazing. Listen, I watched it last night and I absolutely agree. It, it felt like I was watching a transformative art experience in real time. So joining me now is Anna Selman, a senior culture writer for The Cut who wrote, Anna Gadsby's Nanette will change the way you think about comedy. I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree. How do you think it changed the way you think about comedy? Well, I mean, I, I wrote about this in my piece. I think from watching, you know, the stand-ups I grew up with, mostly who are white male mm -hmm. stand-ups, uh, so much of 
you know, their acts was, was built around self-deprecation. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, I think that's why, um, you know, African-Americans and Jews have often been uh, major forces in comedy because they're used to sort of putting themselves mm-hmm. down because that's what the yeah, government culture does to them. Yeah, I see. I'm going to get to the joke first to before you do. Right. And, and, you know, it's a, you know, time-honored stand-up tradition. But what Hannah says in her special is, you know, I'm not... I don't feel comfortable like putting myself down mm-hmm. to, you know, to ha- in order to be able to tell my story and exist mm-hmm. in the world. And I, I'm I'm done uh, sort of building my routine on self-deprecation. Um, you know, for a bit of background, she's uh, she's a woman. She's from Tasmania. She's queer, and she, um, you know, for years has kind of said that she put herself down and kind of you know, made light of those things in order to make her audience comfortable. And in the set, she says, you know, I'm not doing that because the world already marginalizes people like me and I'm not going to marginalize myself further for laughs. Absolutely. And we also have to say it's it's, it's incredibly smart, clearly, right? But also very funny. (laughs) Very funny, yeah. Is it possible to even kind of describe how she's able to subvert the genre and kind of point to even subverting herself, right? These these right. tendencies for self-deprecating comedy, while also, I mean, it's still a stand-up special. How yeah. does she do that? I mean, I think she's got an amazing command of her craft. She really understands how jokes are told, and um, you know, she does in the set go into sort of. She kind of explains to her audience what stand-up comedy is. It's you know, setting up a moment of tension, and then you kind of diffuse that tension right. through a punchline. Right. And then what what she does is she says, you know. By doing that, you're not telling the full story because mm-hmm. you're ending on this punchline, this laugh line, and you're not sort of going beyond that to hear the full, you know, to give full humanity to the story. So what she does kind of by the end of the set is she brings out these moments of tension and then she doesn't diffuse them mm-hmm. with the punchline. She she lets the audience stew in them. Mm-hmm. And that's incredibly powerful. Yeah, I agree. And it also felt like watching like every every little aside, just jokes and you know, lesbian, making fun of lesbians for not having a sense of humor and like little quips. Everything becomes important later. You know, a sly reference to our grandmother, you right. know, is significant. Yes. And it just, I mean, it also is it fair to say like it was also kind of like watching not a speech, but it, it made me think of like the oratorical tradition, right? And like something kind of bigger than even just stand up. Right. And I think that that is kind of what we can take away from it because you know she says um in the set i'm i'm quitting stand up mm-hmm. and i think it's pretty clear from the success of this special she won't be quitting mm-hmm. stand up but maybe this show points to a new model of what right. stand up can be because it's this very powerful experience you've got a bunch of strangers gathered together mm-hmm. listening to someone tell stories and she's kind of saying what if instead of you know just sort of making light of our stories by ending them on a punchline mm-hmm. like what if we you know, told them in their entirety. And that's what she's doing with her own experience of, uh, you know, being a queer woman in Tasmania when, where homosexuality was criminalized, I think, mm-hmm. until 1997. Right, and she says 70% of Tasmania, when she was growing up, believed that it should be criminalized and, and the significance of growing right. up. Right, and she's, you know, yeah. she kind of says she she's frozen her own coming out story uh, by retelling it so many times in her stand-up. Mm-hmm. She's kind of, the joke version has fused with her with, with the reality, and she was like, but that joke version is not substantial enough to help me like undo the trauma that was done to me. And 
So she's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you the full story. Right, right. And here's a tweet I wanted to read because it points to how she kind of looks out. Byron, you said, Hannah Gatsby's Nanette is the first comedy special of this era that feels like a vital response to our nightmare of a world instead of fitfully, uh, instead of a fitfully amusing distraction from it, right? Because she she talks about Harvey Weinstein. She talks about Bill Cosby. And, and she takes it, you know, well beyond kind of the realm of, of entertainment to art mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and Trump himself. And she invokes him. So if there was one Lesson, I guess that you would kind of that you're kind of sitting with as you think about the impact of watching Nanette. What, what would it be? Well, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, I think it's th it's the importance of uh, hearing hearing people's stories. I mean, I think that's kind of what the B two moment has been about. You know, listening to voices mm -hmm. that have not uh, been heard and or who have been uh, valued as less than mm -hmm. the sort of traditional storytellers in our patriarchal society. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's it's the value of a story like Hannah's, you know, getting out there on a mass audience on Netflix, huge platform, mm -hmm. and um, just just really hearing it in its entirety without it, you know, being turned into a punchline to right. make us, the audience, comfortable. Like, we should be uncomfortable and mm -hmm. sit with that discomfort, and that is what Nanette does so beautifully. She does it so beautifully. Guys, thank you so much for joining me, Anna. And I, I'm just, I'm truly grateful uh, for what <laughs> uh, Hannah Gatsby has done. And I'm just so excited for everyone to see it. I'm gonna watch it again with friends and like just keep taking it in. Uh, again, it's Nanette, it's on Netflix right now. Find it and talk about it with more friends. Up next, Isaac and I are going to look at your tweets because it's been a morning, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still talking about thinking, talking about and thinking about Nanette. Um, Hannah Gatsby is just incredible. Um, it got me thinking. There's a, a there's a scene in Sula by Toni Morrison. It's mm -hmm. one of my favorite novels. Where when Sula's a, a young girl, she's on the way to school, consistently being bullied by a group of white boys who mm -hmm. are like just pulling at her dress and everything. And one day, knowing that they're going to be waiting for her and her friends, she stops in the middle of the road, sits down, and pulls out a paring knife mm -hmm. and cuts off the tip of her thumb. Um, and they are shocked and, and stunned. And she says, if I'm willing to do that to myself, what do you think I do to you, right? And, and they get scared and they run away. And it's written as, as a powerful moment. But thinking about Hannah Gatsby in, in the sense of like self-deprecation, and, and that's the nice version mm -hmm. of it, right? It's also like self-hate. Right. It's also like shaming ourselves. And, and this is something I know I've struggled with, you know, growing up, the sense of like, I know what you're going to say about me. So I'm going to say it first. I'm going to be meaner to myself than you can ever be as a way to inoculate. And like what and I feel like what Hannah is asking us is what if we didn't have to cut ourselves, mm. you know, to 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 save ourselves, you know, in that way. And, and it is doing that actually saving us. You know, it, it's just it's. Incredible. I mean, he. Guys. I will say this. I got a text at like immediately 9:30 p.m. last night. That was like, you got to watch this right now. And I was like, it's yeah. bedtime. I was so stunned I couldn't even cry because I just felt like so like wide open. Anyway, that's incredible. That was one of the incredible things that happened this morning. I truly <laughs> look forward uh, to watching it. Phew. Absolutely. Uh, but listen, we had a big show. We asked you if Election Day should be a federal holiday. Jess, you said Election Day should be a federal holiday, but it won't help most hourly workers who will still have to go in unless employers are required to give workers sufficient time off to vote.
And yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. You have to care about the hourly uh, workers out there. And and I do think there are some countries that do allow that. I think Canada Absolutely. that comes to mind, yeah. um, where I think if you're an hourly, that you're given three hours off paid. Um, so yeah. Yeah, and Kate, you add it to that point. Um, even if it were, think about again, who gets federal holidays off? Think about who gets Labor Day off, Christmas, Thanksgiving, because the working poor generally doesn't get uh, federal holidays. Mm. The rigged system has thought this through. So yes, it should be a federal holiday, but would it matter? I mean, I mean, and again, to this point, the way that, you know, democracy and the Constitution are often used as a rhetorical cudgel against certain people, there are countries where, like, it's illegal not to vote, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like you literally have to show up. And, and I think, you know, it, it, it says something about, I would say, the follow-through on, on a concept of a democratic republic. Absolutely. We're because, this is like civil, civil disobedience 101. <laughs> it's a morning show. And to revolution. <laughs> a suggestion from Samos Ali here. Just, oh, here it is, the Just Be Like Canada, oh, okay. where if your employer has to give you three paid hours to be able to go vote, if your working hours would not normally allow you to vote. That way, contract workers, et cetera, still get paid. And that is a very, very good point. Absolutely. Well, okay, let's change the gears for a moment and talk about our new favorite subject, BDE. Mm. You and Allison, that was iconic television. It was Allison. It was Allison. <laughs> I was man. watching great. the control room and it was just like, oh, I'm watching history being made. Okay, this is what libraries rock. Oh, libraries rock. What a great username says. Uh, Big Dick Energy is the hero we knew we need that we never knew we needed. Oh, it, totally. It is the is the hero we never knew right we on needed. Time. I absolutely, like seriously, yeah. I feel like Big Dick Energy saved lives yesterday. It did. I feel Listen, like it cut into the timeline. I'm time in a far better mood. And now. gave a little bit of joy. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna play a lightning round with you right now. Uh, let's do it. Let's. Oh wow, we're gonna do two. Um, let's go with. Um, let's see here. Let's. So you're gonna give me a name. Yeah, yeah. I, let's start easy here. Paul Newman's ghost. Oh, oh, woo. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Uh, let's let's do uh, let's do Drake. Hmm. Wow. You don't get to, you don't get to one he's choice. Pretty, he's pretty good. Uh, Did you see he stood up on uh, Tiffany Haddish for a date, so. Yeah, there you, see, there you go. Keeping okay. up with the timeline. <laughs> Last one, LeVar Burton. Absolutely. Ooh. You heard it here first on AM to DM, LeVar Burton, Big Dick Energy. He took us through the rainbow. Come on. <laughs> what else is there to say? All right. Thank you so much to our guests, Matt Berman, Jill Abramson, Tarini Party, Zoe Tillman, Allison P. Davis, Chantal Fallins, Ashley C. Ford, and Anna Silman for joining us today. What a morning. Thank you all. It was, I mean, it was, we, so much has happened, but it was exciting mm. and a great way to start the day. See you guys tomorrow. Let's see. <laughs> Keep your BDE on you. I have a great for shrimp cocktail now. Oh.